right, rinky dinking two, the second foray into the podcast, and we are emanating from uh, the, the meeting room at Brook Street in Ottawa. And if you know anything about the past, which I don't expect our listeners to know anything about the past, but we've never been here with grass showing. It's always been the dead of winter, Mike Heike. And for the most part, this is a wonderful place to catch up on some sleep just because of the location. <laughs> Ottawa, the city, spectacular. You know, capital of Canada, lots going on downtown. For Christ's sakes, you can... You can skate on the on the Rideau Canal if you want. But out here in what used to be known as Kanata, and now is just part of Ottawa proper, I guess, uh, there's not a lot going on. It is like a sleepy bedroom tech community. It's a great example of people who try to invest in arenas because they get good real estate deals. Right. And we've seen this in Florida. We've seen it in Arizona. We see it here. It doesn't work. You can't just stick an arena in Frisco or, you know, Plano and expect the masses to come. Unless you're just the greatest team in the world and this Ottawa is not. No, but not too long ago they were they were sniffing around the Stanley Cup final. Yeah. The the history of what you just talked about was fleshed out coming out of the lockout in 0506. Every Canadian rank was sold out like to the max except for in Ottawa right and it's been unfortunate at times for the Florida Panthers as well because of where they're when they were downtown I still wish they were yeah. downtown it was easy to get to South Beach <laughs> <laughs> but uh they moved they moved out there again they get a wonderful land deal same thing in Arizona uh, you know, when they were downtown at America West, is yeah. that right? Yeah. It was a terrible rink for hockey, but it was downtown, yeah. and they could have changed a few things or built a new one down there. Instead, they went out to the Burbs, and those are the, the you know, those are three of the, the major uh, spectator issues, if you will, in the NHL right now yeah. because of location. It's got nothing to do really with the teams. Yeah, the teams have struggled a little bit, but – so have the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah. Tampa's a well-run franchise, but you look at Tampa in downtown Tampa and Florida out in the suburbs of Fort Lauderdale, and you're just like, oh, it's night and day. The, yeah. the fan reaction and the support for the team and how you're able to build because you, you're, the money coming in allows you to spend more money. And it's just like Tampa's a fantastic situation. Yes. Florida's a horrible situation. And you're like, huh, I wonder what the difference is here. You know, Jason Spezza told me a story about, about this building out here that we're going to be in tomorrow night. And he said that it was vibrant when they had good teams and they were in the playoffs. And and it was rocking. He said it was tremendous. But one of the issues you have, and this is just the modern fan, yeah. I mean, it takes them two hours to get out to the game, and then they have to go home. So how many beers do you think they're consuming out there? Zero right. for the most part. So you get this very antiseptic, atmosphere within the arena one thing affects the other affects the other it's just too bad it, there's talk obviously here that they're going to build a new arena downtown it can't get here soon enough and even for us as visitors like our our visit is not to ottawa our visit is out here to again uh to this hotel a tech that's it. a tech <laughs> park it's a technology park yeah this hotel the rink and then the airport, yep. and that's it. And it's a shame because it'd be like going to Washington and never going anywhere near downtown. Well, that's the thing, too. It's what a great walking city. Yes. And then when you think about the arena being downtown, think about the, the traffic of business people who might want to see a hockey game, tourists who might want to see a hockey yeah. game, and you make it almost impossible for them to come out here and see one. It's tough. It is tough. It'll be interesting to see just how thick it is for <laughs> the Monday night game against the Dallas Stars. Uh, it could be a lot of offense in that one. Yes, indeed. They have been a surprising team in the early season, the Ottawa Senators, who nobody figured they would have anything going on after what went on in the offseason. But uh, they beat L.A. 5-1 to one the other night. And speaking of the fives, there's been an offensive or offensive eruption in the National Hockey League. Uh, goals and shots on goals, as we saw just the other night at home, uh, have flowed like an ammunition belt uh, 
And uh, do you have any theories on why? I have a couple. I mean, the first one to me is the baseball theory of scouting, coaching, analytics. In baseball, the people said, hey, if you swing in an upward motion and you get exit velocity in excess of 100 miles an hour, then you will get X results. So then the players then start getting coached to do that. And now you have a strikeout home run league, and that's what Major League Baseball is. That's not a good thing, though. No, I don't think it is either. But now this, I think, is a good thing. In the NHL, shots on goal, speed, keep the puck out of your end, move it quickly, have faster players, smaller players even, and then you're going to create more offensive chances in the analytics, say. Are you a heightist? Heightist, yeah. Is that what you're saying? But I don't mind it. I mean, like, uh, did you see that cartoon? You probably didn't see this, that there's a cartoon out there for the Rinky Dinking podcast. Yes, I did see that. You're like that. nine foot seven and I'm two foot three. So I don't it's mind It's not a cartoon. It's a Bitmoji. Is that <laughs> bitmoji, right? Bitmoji. Sorry about that. Huh? It's, it's Those goats. yes. It's a computer generated Bitmoji. Yeah. Here, here's a stat for you. The, the NHL has averaged in the first two weeks 3.2 goals per game. Like, that's what teams are averaging right. 3.2. It, it doesn't sound like a lot. The last time the average was 3.2 or more for a full season was 1993-94. Yeah. 93-94. That's the first year of the Dallas Stars. That was their first year here. Madonna stuck 50 that year. Yep. 100, and, 100 points was nothing and, back and in the day. And even then, it was just a skosh over 3.2. I think it was 3.24. Uh, it, it seems bizarre that we can't manufacture more offense in our game than that. And you want, well, I guess the question, the easy question is, is this sustainable, what we're seeing right now, or does it does it fade as the season moves along, as it always has? Right, I was going to say, history always says it does. A couple of things, and we've talked about this, potentially the smaller pads for the goaltenders could have an influence either both in the actual space where they're defending or psychologically speaking. And that could help it become sustainable. And the second part is, and this is to me is the most important, is if this works, coaches are going to coach this. And I think Well, I think coaches are coaching it now. Right. I think so, that's why this is happening. And that's why it could be sustainable, because coaches have always brought the numbers back down. They've coached defense because defense wins right. in the playoffs. Well if you look back at the so-called dead puck era, right? When the Stars and the Colorado Avalanche, when Patrick Waugh ended up there. and Devils. And the they Devils. Were so, you so know, and they trapped and that. But if you look back to that, it was, it was hyper-coached with structure and defending. And it was the first wave of individu- individuals, players, being able to make seven figures – by scoring five goals, right. you know, because they were just a good defensive player. And at the same time, goaltenders were expanding. The, you know, it wasn't just some figurative thing where when the shooter contracts, you expand. It was expansion by stuffing stuff into pants and uppers and everything else. So you're right. I th- I think... I think by trimming these guys a little bit, and maybe it is a, a tad psychological where they don't believe that that hole is plugged like it was before. Whether there's any truth in it or not, we'll get into goalie gear here in a second. But uh, I think the chaos of the early season, I think coaching, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Monty today too, but there, there seems to be a, a, a change in philosophy. And I don't know that they're just coaching offense. Yeah. I, I think they're, they're, they're coaching in a different way, like he's said in past, where they're trying to create open space in a different manner than has been created for a while, which was basically just barge your way around. Yeah. And you can't overlook a lot of really talented, offensive-flared young players come either have just come into the league or are coming into the league right now. Yeah, we talk about coaching. Well, coaches coach – six-year-olds 
and now kids are going through skating camps and and they're learning to be very fast not just fast but very fast and fast in small places and they're learning skill I mean Austin Matthews is a great example because he taught himself but all he did was play with the puck all the time and so now instead of you know, going to a camp and learning how to forecheck properly or learning how to backcheck properly, you're learning how to handle the puck. Do you think this is a bit of a uh, answer to all the goalie coaching that had been going on in this? But honestly, yeah, like it was the most coached position maybe in sports because it was it was basically one to one, or yeah. at least at the maybe one to two. Both your goalies at the NHL level and every team all of a sudden had a goalie coach. Yeah. And you're like, well, how come nobody scores? Well, geez, figure it out. Well, the goalies are being coached better than, than offense is being coached. And the so, other thing I was going to say is these younger coaches want to have fun. Yeah. I mean, they do. They, I mean, offense is fun. Jim yeah. Montgomery is a center yeah. who – Package the Montgomery stuff. We will, but I'm just saying J- Jim Montgomery's a center who scored a lot getting of Getting all your good stuff in up top, Heike. So now do we have other coaches who are coming in with a mind for offense? Yeah, well, copycat league, right, right. for one. And even goes back to the position of goaltending. The, the reason all these young French-Canadian goalies came about, for the most part, was the best French-Canadian player in hockey after Lemieux had had, right. was forced to retire was Patrick Waugh. Yeah. They all wanted to be Patrick Waugh. You know, all the young Finns, I think, for a stretch, all wanted to be goaltenders. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the yeah, Tamo Solani was around, but now you have Patrick Laine. The the there's good, terrific young American goaltenders too. Yep. But you mentioned Austin Matthews, Patrick Kane. Yeah. There's you know these guys are are off the charts, offensive minded whizzes, and I, I think that feeds it a little bit. Yeah. So. Right. All right. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll pause. We'll get a beautiful musical interlude from our boy Totes and be back to, to go a little deeper into goalie gear. Let me shed this a little bit after this. Not to be all goalie-centric on this podcast, but it is a topic. The goaltenders are peeved. The gear has once again been trimmed. And they feel like they're feeling the puck a little too much, which is part of the position. There is there is a little bit of that. The they're they're rankled. And my word to them is suck it up, buttercups. I don't want to see anybody get hurt. I really don't, but – and maybe with technology, they, they shouldn't be feeling the puck and – or not feeling the puck, but they, they're mad that they're bruising is what, what I get. I, Mike, I used to look like a four-week-old banana from October to April with bruises from pucks, primarily in practice. Right. I was tough to hit in games, but in practice, I did get in, a, in front of a few. And it was just – you know, it was part of the job. It came with the territory of playing that position. They've had a long stretch where they have been, I mean, they've been armored up like the Pope back there. And with that, they, I, I don't know that they've really, I think they've lost the art a little bit of playing the position. I, I know I sound like an old goalie. No, no, you Because I am. But they, they? they've lost a bit of the art because they, they got so blocky Size came in, big guys with big gear, and just block an area of, of the goal. I don't think it's very pleasing to the eye to watch it. I, you know, go back and watch Grant Fuhrer back in the day. It's, a beaut- it, it's art watching him play the position. So are, are they – is there something to this? Have they gone too far? Or do you think goalies are just pushing back? It's, and I'll go back to the brain thing again. Uh, I think they've gotten to a point where they expect 920, 930 save percentages and you know below 2.0 in the goals against average. And so when they don't get that, they get testy. And I remember watching guys like you. I don't and, think they're – you know what? I, I honestly don't think they're, they're as upset about goals going in. I, I think they're upset about their own safety. I, and, and they – you know, in some ways, they may have a case yeah. with that. 
my understanding understanding of how they went about tri- contouring the arms this is all about the yeah. the chest and and shoulder and arm pads that they have and you know if you just use a one piece i think bishop has a one piece on the arms you don't have to worry about seams the the issue seems to be in order to get that instead of a flat surface on the arm they want it to contour the shape of the, the human arm and with that they have to put little seams in there so there's padding then there's a little seam and that seam if a puck hits there's no there's you know a little thin piece of foam but that's it yeah well and on the other side of it they've done so much technology to make the shot harder and now we've seen bish go down with concussions when he hits his mask and you're just like well shouldn't that protect you I mean, like, if you're getting hit in the mask, then that's a pretty hard shot. So, you know, that could be part of their complaint, too. I mean, uh, uh, Patrick Line shot, or, you know, that may be harder now because of the technology and the flex point. Do you think they're the harder? I, no, because I watched L, how, the, the planet. Yeah. L.I. Afraidy. Yeah. He used to sit in the hallway between periods and have a dart, and he'd light it with the propane torch that they used to curve sticks with, could shoot the puck 110 miles an hour. Right. With a wood stick, 110 miles an hour. It's not like these modern players with their composite sticks and what have you are shooting the puck 130 miles an hour. They're still in that range. I think more guys shoot it harder than than did 20 years ago. You're not going to get an argument from me, but the actual top end of it I don't think has changed all that much. I'm – not being a goalie, I'm fine with their the risk factor for goalies because it makes the game funner to watch. Yeah. And I'm all for great saves, but uh, like you've said, I think a lot of what goaltending was is let the puck hit you. Be positionally strong, be six foot six, move, have nice square pads, and let the puck hit you. And to me, that is not the art of goaltending, but it's what we've seen over the past 10 years or so. Do you know what would be an interesting premise to put forth to the goalie union? would be, okay, what do you guys want? Do you want a bigger net and we'll allow you guys to gear up? Or do you want the net to remain the size it is, but we're, we're going we're gonna to stay steadfast with this trimming? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Like, in theory, they'd want the bigger net because then they could feel safe. But then again, do you really want a bigger net behind you? I don't know. I don't know. I guess if it's equal for everybody, then the good goalies will still be the good goalies. I don't know. Well, that that seems to be the the general consensus. And when they moved the pads from 12 inches to 11 inches in width, most of the guys just said, you know what, I'll be a little bit quicker. It's not going to make any difference. Right. And it really it really hasn't. It's marginal if, if there is a difference. But I, I think – I don't want to see anybody, any goaltender have to leave a game – when they get hit hit by a puck. If if they pull something or whatever, that's that's their own doing. I don't want to get to a point where a guy stops a shot with his arm and all of a sudden he has a fracture of a bone in his arm because of that. They need to be protected, obviously. But I, I'll be honest with you, I really haven't seen much of yeah. that when goalies come out. So for now they're they're just gonna have to suck it up, Mike Heike. Suck it up. We're in Ottawa. And I know what everyone's thinking. Jason Spezza. That topic's next. So this is the Jason Spezza acquisition four years plus removed. And it'll be interesting to watch the media here locally again gravitate to Jason and he'll do his usual, and he obviously has a relationship with a lot of the same scribes that are around here. Just to remind our listeners, so he was acquired from the Senators July 1st, 2014. It was Spezza and Ludwig Carlson for Alex Chason in Dallas. Chason, when he played here, I always call them that. switched back. <laughs> to chase on when he ended up in Calgary and won a Stanley Cup with the uh, Washington Capitals last year, went on a PTO to Edmonton's camp this year and managed to earn himself a contract and is uh, a good young gentleman that 
Stu Barnes thinks is just fine. So, Well, I, I remember Lindy just shooting pucks at the net and being amazed at how good Alex Chason's hands were in front of the net to deflect pucks on the power play. So he has talent, and he, was a, he was a good part of the deal for Ottawa. He was a big part of the deal. Yeah. He's, uh, what What did I say, three, three teams removed yeah. from that now? Uh, Nick Paul was that, also – That was the centerpiece right there. I think he just got called up. I think they have injuries here. Does Did he? he? I think he was – I thought he was washing out, but I have to, I'd have to check it I, out. I again. thought I saw that he got, he got recalled by the Senators. Okay. And Alex Guptel, who is uh, toiling with the Nottingham Panthers. University of Michigan's Alex Guptel, I think. Oh, is it? Shout out to Marty well, Turco. He's, <laughs> <laughs> Go maize and blue. The uh, he, he's playing in the EIHL. There you go. Which is England. I, I guess. don't know International Hockey yeah. League. I don't know. Nick English. Paul was supposed to be the gem of that deal. They also got a uh, second round draft pick in 2015, I believe. Something. Uh, and it was either either Gabe Gagne or Philip Clap uh, Clapic Chlapic. One of those two. Those are the two second-round draft picks I could figure out from the Ottawa Senators. So anyway, uh, long preamble into uh, Jason Spezza, the spectacular person. And where where do you think that thing, the, the whole trade and all of it sits in 2018? It's a really good question because I think what he gave you – under Lindy Ruff was some really good stuff. And then you go back to the thought that Jamie Benn was your number one center and you had no center depth in the organization. And the fact that Jim Nell added Tyler Sagan. That's and, a good point. And Jason Spezza like that. And then handed them to Two Lindy. second overall picks. Hand them to Lindy Ruff and said, go. You want to go? Go. And and I think it did work for a while. I mean, when when the Stars had those wingers that could fly, when they had Alex Hemsky and when they had Matthias Yanmark in his rookie year and they had a couple other wingers who really got speed and they had defensemen who could move the puck to him, Jason Spezza was a really good fit for this team. And then he's always been good on the power play. Now, that being said... You know, he makes seven point five million dollars. Yeah, that's that, the that thing. Has to be worked into the formula. Yeah, somewhere. I hate that, but yeah. I know it's reality. It's mo- probably more reality nowadays than it's ever been. Yeah, where the individual is attached to, especially especially if it's a good number. Right, they're just attached to what that number is. It's almost like a. Uh, uh, nomenclature or something for but the I'll individual. I'll go back and say that Scott Glennie had a number eight chain around his neck right. from the first day he was here. And he didn't make that decision, but he had to wear that. Yeah, okay. Eighth overall pick. Sorry, kid. The You know, you look at, as you mentioned, Spezza came in, uh, 17 goals, 33 goals, 15 goals, eight goals. Last year was a disaster yeah. for him. And I had a pretty good conversation with him before the season. All he really wants is a chance yep. with Montgomery. Yep. He's like, if I can't do it, I can't do it. But don't make your mind up before you get at least give me a chance. So uh, he's gonna he's getting that chance right now. The power play's been phenomenal, and they're still trying to. I think they're still trying to figure out what's the best fit underneath of Tyler and Jamie, as far as getting a little spark from somebody else. Here, here's the other thing, though. I I, I was curious about and you I think you brought this up do you think the way that deal shook out affected Jim Nill in his pursuit of Eric Carlson yeah. with the same club again uh, with Pierre Dorian the the GM of the Ottawa Senators do you think in some way they looked at you know do we want to go down that path again because they literally don't have anybody from the Spezza deal Playing for them. Yeah. And my theory is it was two things. One, Jim Nell made his best offer too quick. So, like, if you're negotiating for a car, you want to feel that you're going to make a bargain, right? Well, I think Jim Nell went in and said, I want Eric Carlson. Here are my best players. Other than Miro Haskinen, here are some really good players. And he put them on the table, and they said, yeah, we'll wait on that. And they came back and said, well, what else you got? And he's going, no, no, you don't understand. I made my best deal. And I do think that was part of it. But I also think that they're looking at Julius Honka. And it's easy from the outside to say, I don't know Julius. about this. Julius Honka. Julius. Hudobin. Julius Hudobin. All right, I'll get better at this. Uh, Julius Honka, they look at him and say, eh, 
you know? What, what has he done? And then they look at, you know, whoever else might have been included in the deal, whether that's Brett Ritchie or Devin Shore or Rope Hints or whoever, and go, eh, is that the next Nick Paul? And I do think that history may have caused them to pause because the deal that San Jose sent, I'm not sure it was the best deal. No, and that was that was sort of what was bouncing around when we were up in Boise was the fact of really like that's better than whatever. And you know, it's it's rumor. We're right, not we're inside. just guessing. We're right. not but, inside. But I mean, I think you can guess about but five or six players. Yeah. Somehow names do mm. end up filtering out, and uh, it'll be interesting to see where where it all ends up next summer. Yeah. Like, let's say it doesn't go well with the Sharks. And they don't do very well. And he doesn't re-sign with them. All of a sudden, the Stars have a ton of cap space. They've got cash. And they might be a front runner to pick up Eric Carlson a different way than, than yeah. trading for him. So It's interesting. Yeah, especially, it especially when you watch someone like John Klingberg. Mike Heike. It, it is interesting. It is interesting. You watch Klingberg and think, there's a guy who – John Klingberg could learn from. True. Here's a tidbit on Jason Spezza, just to wrap it up. Last Ottawa Senator to register a hat trick against the Dallas Stars <laughs> was Jason Spezza. That's perfect. Well, he needs to get a hat trick tomorrow. In then. 2010. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Well, back to talk about the – we're not going anywhere. Why do I always say that, Totes? It's a podcast for crying out loud, people. You don't go away. There are no commercials. You just pause or you move on. I'll tease this, Monty, after this. I did it again! Just to defend myself, perhaps we were changing one of the VHS machines, our reel-to-reel or whatever it was. That's why I had to take a break on the podcast. Makes sense to me. You no, know it doesn't. You're looking at me like I've got five heads. Heike. One of the things you wanted to talk about was Jim Montgomery. And uh, it's a good topic, I think. A lot of people have been talking about Jim Montgomery for a long time. You wanted, you wanted to talk about what in regards to the Stars' young head coach? Well, it was just the other day. And I saw him do it. And I thought that it was. I thought he was kind of fibbing to me uh, because he went in. Is that uh, because you've been lied to by so many by so head many coaches, coaches through the years? And he went to that second line. Or no, he actually went to I think um, uh, Radulov, uh, Sagan, and uh, Nachushkin. And I thought, you know, well, that was kind of out of left field. What are you doing there? And then he goes, Well, Jamie broke a, a, a skate lace, and you know he had to miss three or four shifts. And so that I mean they went with that three or four different times. I'm like, well, just. just through the equipment staff under the bus. Oh, I know, yeah. Blamed it all on them. Uh, but I thought Radulov and Nachushkin showed some chemistry there in, in just a couple of shifts. Well, then we come to You practice. know, they're from the same country. Are you I've aware of that? I've heard that before. Uh, I, I try to look at people as individuals. and Not, not borders? Not, yeah, not lop, wow. lump them all together. And uh, Anyway, so the next practice, he again had Nachushkin and Radulov together. And obviously the last game uh, when he wanted to jolt the lineup that was down 3 nothing. He went with Nachushkin, Radulov, and Spezza. And, and I like that. I like that, especially if it did really happen, that he only went to that because of a skate lace uh, and then learned from it and then, you know, built on it. I think that's good coaching. Um, not that Hitch or Lindy or Mike Babcock wouldn't have done the same thing, but, you know, I think they look at things and scout things and say, this is how we want to do things and we're going to stick to our plan. And I think this, you know, may have been a fortuitous moment and a young coach said, huh, let, let's stick with that for a little while. Lindy had a great line back in the days. He would talk about certain veteran players and it could be applied to other things. But he said, I think the clay's set with that one. Yeah. You know, the clay is set. You can't really mold it. And yet he had the Lindy lotto picker back there with line changes. <laughs> and then uh, Hitch would Hitch was pretty stable, but he would go nuts underneath every now and then. You didn't know what you were getting out of lines two, three, and, right. and four. And, uh, and we're learning, I think, a little bit about Jim Montgomery and how he approaches these things. It, it was – when they were talking after the loss to the Leafs about 
shuffling things a little bit. Right. Just because, I mean, it's wonderful to get 90% of your offense from one line. If they continue to score at the rate that they're doing, it might be enough to win hockey games. Yeah. But that's at home when you get last change and you can match them and you can get them out there at certain times. You head out on the road, as we've seen the last few seasons, and if you're a one-line team, you are going to get murdered. You just have no hope because they're able to get their alignments defensively, defense pairs, forward lines against your top guys, that yes, they have to fight through it, but it's yeah. they can't have the same impact that they do on home ice. But I, I looked, and I, you know, I'm not trying to second guess anyone, but it's fun to. I think everybody writes down yeah. lines. I'm sure all everybody listening does we it from time. Why do they play so and so and so and so? So this is what I wrote down that they I felt they should do. So I had I had Ben Sagan and Como, and that ended up being a line partway through the game last night. I had Nichushkin with Spezza and Radulov, and that ended up being a line eventually during the game. I I had uh, Shore, Foxa, and Pitlick just because I thought they were getting a lot of good scoring opportunities. Yeah. They just weren't scoring. And they they had wonderful uh, segments of games defensively, you know, straight up against Shifley yeah. in, the, in the Winnipeg game. They were terrific. And then, uh, you know, for the most part, I'd, I'd left the kids alone on yeah. that fourth line just because you were at home and you could protect them a little bit if you needed to do that. So it was Dickinson, Hintz. And uh, and Richie. Brett Ritchie, and then on the defense pairs, which changed a little bit, but I thought you know John Klingberg and, and Lindell were kind of peaks and valleying things. Yeah. For a couple of games, I thought why not put uh, Mathot with Klingberg? Yep. And put the two fins together and have Lindell and and Haskinen, and then if you wanted they they were playing well. Why not mm. leave Carrick and and uh, Polak? together on that third pair so anyway that was yeah. that was my thinking going just in just jotting things down yeah and it was so when it manifested itself partway through the game prompted by the fact they were down three love <laughs> well. I was just like well maybe I'm not a moron I, yeah. I think I still am moronic but maybe I'm not a complete moron and not that I'm ever going to be coaching a, a team anytime soon but you know we saw the similar things and and one of the things the veteran players said to me in training camp about Monty that they they could tell right away was that he was a good bench coach. Yeah. And what that usually means is there there are a lot of terrific coaches that have come through here or coached around the league that have their club supremely prepared for the opposition and have a delicious plan A. But plan B doesn't come until the next day. Like, it's not coming in game. And that was the genius of Scotty Bowman back yeah. in the day. I mean, f f everyone talked five minutes into the game. He had a pretty good sense of who was going and who wasn't on right. his own team. And it changed like that. And the guys say that he, he is so smart and so uh, perceptive and is unafraid to make some changes. He has belief in what he's going to do. So I think we, we fi finally saw more of that that we can see, right. I'm sure it's gone on behind the bench with the players prior to that, but we could actually see it in that game the other night, and it worked miracles. Yeah, he said this morning, and I thought this was really interesting, that he's actually looking forward to coaching on the road because he wants that challenge. Yeah, he's, that he, doesn't surprise me no, at all with No, he has tricks him. up his sleeve, and he wants yes. to see if they work. And I'm going Everything's like, still in the trunk. Great. He's got he wants to bring he it on. Uh, you can I, – I don't know. You, you can – you can see why so many teams and, and so many veteran coaches wanted to hire this guy. Yeah. Like we haven't been around him that long, but you can you can see why everyone was enamored with Jim Montgomery. He did that interview on the ticket, which I thought was great, and said, "This is why I wanted to come here." Like he had choices, and he said, "I didn't like this offer. I didn't like that offer. I like this offer because." This team has a ton of talent, and I like the GM. And then you're suddenly going like, oh, wow, they got a pretty good coach then. If this guy had two or three other offers, he could have taken. Yeah, and even in, in trying to filter through the offers, he went to some of these veteran coaches and asked said, their opinions on yeah. it. Where can I succeed? You know, he's, he's networking pretty good, Jim Montgomery. It's been a wonderful start uh, for him. And it, 
this is a good test with the little home and home and then back home again and then it gets severely real down the road on the road i think we uh we don't have tom holy for holy propaganda this week uh but he did send something in on uh via the smartphone i believe it is so we'll come uh back after this beautiful musical bump with holy puckaganda followed by millennium uh millennial musings not millennium were you around in the millennium yeah you were barely huh seven, seven. you were seven isn't that something it's you like the duck you don't know what did to you do see with that your hand did you see that note <laughs> from like ricky bobby did you see that note from helene elliott about the ducks <laughs> they have eight guys on their roster that weren't born the first year the Ducks played in the National Hockey League. We're getting old. Uh, holy propaganda upcoming. All right, propaganda from Dallas Stars PR and Communications Department and uh, our guru, Tom Holy. So he, not on the trip, so he fired off this text. I'll just read it. I'll read it cold, as they say in the business. Uh, For the second consecutive season, John Klingberg has opened the season with a four-game point streak. The only defenseman in franchise history with a longer point streak to start a season is? Sergei Zuboff. You're right. Why does that's the default? I know it is. It's like Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky on Jeopardy. That's all anybody answers for. One of the greatest Kamloops Blazers of all time. Daryl Sador. Daryl Sador. When he opened the uh, 98-99 season, I I heard that was a pretty good one for the Stars. He had a five-game point streak. Uh, Sador has uh, uh, ten points in the first five games of the Stanley Cup winning season. How about that from Tom Moley? Uh, He follows that up with, since Klingberg entered the NHL in November of 2014, remember he didn't start the season, he came up? I think 15 points in 10 AHL games or something like that. He is third third amongst NHL blue liners with 219 points in 307 games. Only the man we spoke of earlier, Eric Carlson, and his new teammate, Brent Burns, have more points in that span. Yeah, those guys are weak defensively. Though. How about that? Klinger, Klinger shuts down to the front of the net, not like Carlson and Burns. I'm being sarcastic. How about that? It's fantastic. He's amazing. You know what? And then, again, we go to money, right? You look at his contract and how he helps them spend money in other areas. And then you also talk to the guy. And he wants to get better every single day. He cares so much about being good defensively, good on the penalty kill. And he weighs 175 pounds. And, you know... That's pretty impressive. Uh, the last little nugget from Tom and Puckaganda this week. John Klingberg only averages 23 minutes a game as opposed to basically 28 minutes for Eric Carlson and 25-plus for Burns. So in shorter minutes, he's been able to put up comparable numbers to those two Norris-winning defensemen. Yeah. That's, hey, he's good. That is what we call – a rock solid holy propaganda. Do you think the fans think better of the franchise when they hear from Tom? He seems to like put positive thoughts into their heads. Yeah, well, at one point this year we'll get him to do a negative one. <laughs> I don't think he can. I don't think he can either. <laughs> uh, our other healthy guest is sitting with his hoodie on. He looks so millennial right now. He's got the cans around the neck, bottle of water in front of him. Lots of technology around him in a hoodie. He's Jeff Totes, and Millennial Musings is next. Totally. Totes my goats. Cool. All right, the Millennial only brought two microphones on the <laughs> two-game road trip, so we're sharing a mic across the table. What? What? Three people. Can you do math? Yeah, fortunately, the hotel is in a technology park, so I could have, if I'd, if I'd had more time after the bus, I could have worked something up. Exhausted? I was in a rush. Were you exhausted from your first day of travel? I was. Happy to be back on the road. All right. Toast my ghost, our 24-year-old uh, production uh, guru. What do you got this week for us? Uh, I want to go back to a conversation we were having 
yesterday at skate. Um, now that we're back on the road and soon to be in New Jersey, that has to be one of the furthest broadcast platforms that you call a game from when you just talk ice level to your vantage point. Is it as far as it gets, or are there worse ones? You know, you bring this up, and I was also inquisitive about my perches around the National Hockey League. And <laughs> I went next level. How many years ago was that now? And I, you know what? You forgot a microphone or didn't bring one. I forgot to bring the notes about distances. But I charted every broadcast location in the NHL. And I carried a, a rangefinder, a golf rangefinder with me. And I'd get up to my booth and I would shoot center ice with the laser and each goal. And obviously there are some really good spots that uh, are wonderful uh, areas to call a game from, the world's fastest game. And there are some just god-awful ones. And Jersey, the rock, <laughs> would fall under god-awful. You, you're a mile away. Jersey, Washington. Washington's a little bit like American Airlines Center up top in that you're not only high, you're back, which is probably the worst thing you can have for, for our sport. And some buildings have improved where your perches are. And others, it's gone the other direction. A little bit like the NBA, where they used to have the broadcasters right on the floor, and then they uh, had an epiphany one day and said, you know, we could sell those seats for a lot more money than we're getting. Yeah, let's do that. Let's put the broadcaster somewhere else. But I've said for years, we are given the worst uh, seat in the house to broadcast to, well, millions, uh, hundreds of thousands, tens, hundreds. I've always said that on a given night, you know, we have, let's say we have 20,000 uh, spectators uh, filtering in and out. Pretty good number, I would think, uh, yeah. f for our little club. We broadcast to them. We entertain hundreds. So <laughs> uh, the, the, the best ones are the Canadian ones, not called Ottawa, because they have, they have gondolas. So it, it's a broadcast location that hangs down underneath the rafters and is also pushed out over the ice surface which is what you want montreal the bell center is beautiful is probably the the best in the league we have a wonderful location at american airlines center where we moved down it would be awful having to call f half of your games from way up top right is bell but center your favorite perch in the league i i think it's just my favorite arena city uh, everything. I was a huge Montreal Canadiens fan growing up, but Vancouver, it's fantastic there. Toronto's a great location. Yep. Uh, Edmont Edmonton's new arena, they screwed up as far as I'm concerned. We're way up and, and back. The new one in Detroit uh, is, is very good. Uh, Mickey Redman, former Red Wing great and terrific broadcaster for decades there. The, the organization, uh, the Illiches gave him free reign on setting it up, and he basically just said, whatever's in Montreal, whatever's in Montreal build that here. Yeah. And they've come pretty close. Uh, old school Calgary? I love it. You think you're going to die every time you, do, you go out there, I, though. Like you do, like but one you, of these you times, feel the game. Well, yeah, the, yeah, the, fla the it's, flame No, 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 Mike, you're wrong, you're wrong. In, the kids love it. The millennials our, love have you, it. Have you been in our booth? I don't know if it's the same for you writers. We're a little bit higher. If, I, if I'm sitting there, if I get up, there's a beam. There's a four-by-four four metal beam right above my head. You're a very tall, man. I would be concussed. No, you, I could be 5'9", <laughs> and I'd hit that thing. George Johnson's hitting his head but on when it. But you, when you walk across that catwalk to get to the gondola, like there's no earthquake going on, but that thing is – Swaying, I mean, it is swaying up there, and they had that flood. They had eleven feet of water in there. It just it, ugh, it gives, <laughs> that that one gives me the creeps. There's a new one coming. If they get the Olympics in 2026, they'll build a new one there. But Jersey, Jersey, it's a rumor. The game is it's down there. <laughs> uh, Pat Foley had the greatest line back at American Airlines Center. You know we. Uh, we moved the other television people down yeah. with with us on the platinum level. Platinum level. 
But before that, they were all the way upstairs, and Pat, Pat Foley's going on to the elevator, and he was, you know, he's crusty, and he's Pat Foley from the Hawks, and he's like, Razor, tell you what, if anybody scores down there, how about shooting off a flare? <laughs> <laughs> and you are the eyes of the people. It does not make any sense. Like, you, you are trying to pick up things, nuanced little things, and keep up with the sport, the world's fastest sport. I think I mentioned that earlier. And you're doing so from the worst seat in the house. And you're broadcasting to the masses like that. Up in the press box, we'll go to Twitter real quickly. And the people at home are watching on 60 and 3. I do the same with, thing. With remote control reverse. And they're going like, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm watching it right here. And you're wrong. I know. Do you, what do you think of, of broadcasting in general? In general? Yeah, like the way the game is fed to somebody in their mid-20s. Do you, uh-huh. think you're, you think you're getting what you would really want or would you want something different? You know, I just saw a video of how they, the camera angle they used in the 2001 NBA All-Star game. And it was a low baseline cart cam that went uh, floor level, like shoe level with the yeah. guys. And it was awesome. And I have no idea why that's not been used since that All-Star game. It was phenomenal. And they use it occasionally in March Madness, but never as a default game. You look. just immediately go to the NBA, don't you? Yeah. You guys yeah. love you. I don't know what, I don't know what hockey, hockey's equivalent of that well, would be. Well, we've, we've tried the Dasher cam. Yeah. But that we had a little rail that ran across there. Yeah. Mm. We tried uh, – we've had Sky cam. What are your thoughts on in the Winter Classic when the Sky cam is the camera one look? Because I like that a lot. Yeah. Here's the issue we have now. Even if you wanted to try to replicate what goes on in the gaming world, which is, I think, I think the two are sort of meshing a little bit. Oh, yeah. But if you wanted to do that, you can't do that in hockey because you'd be shooting through a great big net at the end of, of the rink. Right. Because that's – I believe that's, that's a pretty good angle. But, you know, we throw cameras in above the glass and behind the net. It gives you a different look, but I don't think it's a great look. I've always wanted to put a camera that, that can move all over the place, almost have its own space underneath the video screen at Center Ice. Yeah. I think they called it a hothead back in the day. Anaheim had a great one. But it gives you – it gave a pretty good sense of, of the speed of the game, and it, you could pick up almost everybody on the ice in the attacking zone like that. I, mean, I sit and, and watch and think of different ways – that you could cover this thing. And I can't come up with much anymore because it. what you want to do in broadcasting, our sport, I think, is you want to take people and put them on the other side of the glass. Yep. That, that's, I think that if you could ever figure out how to do that better, you know, you have goal cams and you have this and that, but to have something that puts you right inside there. Like I'm watching the NFL, something happened. It wasn't even a touchdown. Like it was just a play, and they they cut back, and there was a guy out there with a steady cam, like he's on the field, yeah, like two yeah. seconds after the play ended, and he's right in their and face, and he's right there. Now the one thing that I think has worked pretty good because of technology that the Canadians have have used, I think on Sportsnet, is is the ref cam. Yeah, anything mounted on on helmets or on goalies' masks before was atrocious. I mean, you needed Dramamine just to watch. <laughs> five seconds of it because it was moving around in that but would you agree with that though that I definitely agree with that it would it would be a more it would be a more interesting sport to watch if you could go inside the glass for sure with the camera not just with the the uh, analysts down at ice level it's fine it's all going to be drones in 10 years (laughs) (laughs) spoken like a true millennial you know what you're probably right yeah you're probably right as soon as they get uh, safety concerns out of the way. Drones. Yeah, teach it'll, your, it'll teach be your like kid he, to fly a drone, and he will be—he'll have a job for the rest of his life. Yes, just pilots. You should be going to school right now. <laughs> All you young people out there that are listening to this podcast, don't think you want to be a broadcaster. You, you want to go into drone piloting. That's that's the future. Anyway, on that note, uh, millennial musings is done for another week. And drones is the answer. I don't know what the question was, but drones is the answer. 
Uh, let's wrap it up with some final thoughts next. I think this has gone swimmingly, Mike. Yes. Uh, week two. Other uh, than almost as good as a pilot that nobody's ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe they brought us back for week two, to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, rinky dinking uh, will r- resume again. We'll probably do it next Tuesday, I think, is the next one. So we'll have some couple of games on the road and another game back at home against the hated Minnesota Wild who are coming to town. Uh, I was thinking of this one, and I don't know why. I guess it's – well, I do know why. The next two teams the Stars play are both red teams. The Ottawa Senators. Yeah. New Jersey Devils. The Beelzebubs. The Lucifers. Red is a power color. Do you realize this? Half the teams in the NHL are red or have red. That is shocking. 15 of the 31. And the Mudoris has red. We don't talk about that. (laughs) Lots of power in that. But the reason that that had red in it was because it supposedly – I don't know whether it shows aggression or prompts aggression, whatever it is, there's aggression in there. Uh, green means victory. We do there know you that. Go, yeah, and and, money. Uh, and uh, what do you do? You think do you think red is a powerful color for hockey and sports? Do you think yeah. it has an effect? Yeah. Well, I, I like. Or I think it's overdone. No, I like red uniforms. I, I actually was on board with your uh, Texas flag, red, white, and blue. And when you have that option, like the United States, you can have a red uniform, you can have a blue uniform, you can have a white uniform. I like that, the options you could have with red. Uh, so I do think it's powerful. Um, and clearly, whatever psychologists have studied this, you know, Donald Trump pretty much wears a red tie every day because somebody told him. We said no politics in this, right. Mike. Well, sorry about that. But it, somebody told him that's 50 power. minutes in. You almost got there. I'm sorry. And we're in Canada, too. So this is like, you know, neutral ground, I, so I can say what well, I want. So that doesn't make any sense. The Canadian flag is red and white, and yet we're a very docile or docile, uh, calm, loving, friendly neighbor of yours. Maybe that's where your power is. Leave you with this. Red, capes, and bulls. The belief is that it's the red and the cape that prompts the aggression under the bull. It's a lie. There is no fact attached to that. It's a myth. The bull merely charges anything and everything. And with that, we have no more BS to put forth. We'll talk to you next week on Rinky Dinking. Rinky Dinking.